This is a Discovery Church podcast. Tune in to hear from our team as we invite you to find yourself in the bigger story. To find out more about what's going on in the life of the church, head to discoverychurch.com.au. Now, question that has baffled and confused and intrigued people since time began. What does God look like? Children, this is a great thing to get your kids to draw. What does God look like? Right? Like it's a perfect one to kind of open up with and you really get the creative juices flowing on that. But of course, why does it matter what God looks like? You've got an image in your head of what God looks like. And the impression of what we get when we think about that word is shaped by many forces. It's shaped by your history. It's shaped by your tradition. It's shaped by some of your life experiences. It's shaped by what you've heard. It's shaped by what you've seen. It's shaped by your imagination, the culture that we live in as well. And why does it matter what God looks like? Well, it matters because first impressions matter. It matters because um, you will likely run to or from something or someone depending on what they look like. Um, When I was growing up, we had the neighborhood bullies that lived around the corner from my house. They beat me up on the way home from school, right? And so my job each day was to try and figure out creative ways of getting home without having to run, right? And it felt like running for your life, you know? So you were like, there was this this one family lived around the corner. We kind of knew them, but they also just, it was a bit of a sport, like beating up kids in the neighborhood. And, um, And so I was one of those kids. And now also on my way home, we had a house just around the corner opposite where the bullies lived that had a, um, the bullies, right? I still call them like I'm five, right? The neighborhood bullies. And um, they, there was a, um, a house around the corner with one of those big steel gates across the front of it. And every time you would walk past the house, you would see this snout and snarling teeth and like loud barking, barking, barking at you, like jump every time going past. Now, of course, when the neighborhood bullies come after me, am I going to that house for safety? No, because I'm going to get eaten by a dog, right? Across the other side of the road was a beautiful old lady, 92 years old, still lived alone, still lived, um, still lived at home by herself, and she was, she was doing well. But was I, could I really rely on her for safety when the neighborhood bullies came? Unfortunately not, although she was lovely. But then there was this other house, and it had that little, you know that little sticker? The little safety house sticker. Thank you, Jesus. That was my house. That was the house, not my house, but that was the house around the corner that I could go to. It was strong. There was people there who were awesome. They were capable. I was able to go in there for safety. Now, when we think about God and what God looks like, likely you are going to have a grab bag of experiences or scenarios. Maybe for you, God looks like the snarling teeth under the gate. Maybe God looks like the beautiful, benevolent, but harmless 92-year-old lady. But where do we go when things get rough? Where do you run when you're exiled on a rocky island called Patmos? 
separated from all that you know. That's a common experience that all of us have, 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 uh, have encountered, I know. The Bible makes it clear and makes it plain. How do we approach God? Let's read Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9 and going to verse 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, "What? write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I love that turn of phrase. How can you see a voice? And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from the mouth, his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Quick recap on the book of Revelation written in 96 AD, the Apostle John writing to churches, real world churches in Asia. Um, it was Roman territory all the way around. It was ruled by Caesar and this guy called Domitian. Domitian liked to be called our Lord and God. Right? He had somewhat of a complex. He thought he was divine. And so he was, he was, it was mandated that everyone call him our Lord and God. It was written for encouragement, correction, and strength to those seven churches in those influential cities. It was aimed at the imagination and written in a style of literature that's foreign to us now, but was very common in the day called apocalyptic literature, which literally means unveiling or uncovering. Or simply, wow. There are over 500 allusions or quotations from the Old Testament. So if you know your Old Testament, this book is going to be jumping out at you left, right, and center. And the first thing that we see here is we meet the person of John who's exiled for his faith and separate from his church. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation kingdom of patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God 
and the testimony in Jesus. Now, this is a bad start. If you were going to write any kind of book, this is a bad beginning because where we start is the person who's writing it is exiled, separate, essentially a religious prisoner on a rocky island off the coast of Turkey. Church tradition has it that at this time he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and so he was separated physically by water, and and he was separated politically from the church that he was leading. This is a bad start. And not only is he there because of the powers that be of the day, he says he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So the thing that has brought him together with his church is also the thing that's keeping him apart. He could simply recount recant his faith in Jesus and be with his church. But if he recants his faith, he loses the reason for being with his church. Does that make sense? This is a bad start. When was the last time you were separated from somebody that you loved? It's happened a lot over the last few years. We've known what it feels like to be separate, to be doing doing birthday parties or weddings on Zoom. Even funerals have had to take place and we we are now a little bit more aware or conscious of what separation does to each of us. The thing about John was he was committed to prayer. I don't know that if there was a church on Patmos at this time, I don't know that there was a group who he was able to pray with, but he simply says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What's interesting there is that's the only mention of that that phrase, the Lord's day, in all of scripture. Not seen before, not seen after. Christians up until this point met on Saturday. They met on the Sabbath. But something about John here, he says he was in the spirit, as in in worship, in prayer, on the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? Domitian's day? What day is the Lord's day? It's a Sunday. Why is it a Sunday? It's the day that Jesus rose. So right here in exile, we are already reminded that resurrection power is at work. I'm going to start preaching early today. So usually here's, like, here's how I usually preach, right? I like build it up first 10, 15 minutes. That's the part you skip. And then you get to the end and I kind of like come home with a flourish and like kind of lay like ideas upon ideas. That's how I roll. Today I'm not doing that. I'm starting early, right? So when we gather together, no matter how exiled you feel, how separated you feel, it's always a good idea to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well done on those of you who've pushed through to be here this morning, no matter the sense of feeling separated, exiled, something's not right. Those of you who've joined us online, same, same. You've pushed through to be somewhere today. You are in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which means resurrection power is a possibility for you. There is resurrection always around the corner, even for John, who is separated from his church, who is a political and religious prisoner at this point in time. From him comes one of the most incredible letters that we have in existence today. Doesn't matter how bad things get. You can always connect. Now... His faith had a context. Do you know we don't worship in a vacuum? You know, it's like we don't just like kind of get plonked down 
somewhere in time and space, at some point with nothing surrounded. He's told, write what you see to seven churches and tell them about what I'm going to tell you. And the churches are listed there. They're listed in order. Write what you see in a book, send it to seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That were a, they were common because imagine you were doing a tour of that region, right? Imagine there is a, um, there is a travel agent about AD 100, you know, kind of a web jet is set up in, um, in the area. And I want to tour that area, and they're going to say, you know the best way to travel? You've got to start at Ephesus, because it's the biggest city. And once you've been to Ephesus, you're going to spend there a couple of days, and then you're going to travel on. And the next place you're going to go is to Smyrna. It's a beautiful city high up on a mountain. It's gorgeous. You're going to love it. Spend a couple of days there. Get the room with the view, right? In this order, it is listed. The churches are listed in the most common travel route for people to go and the travel route that ministers, Christians, people of faith, um, gospel-centered apostles would travel in that way. They would go in this circuitous route around these particular places. They have a context. There is different things going on in each city, different stories that have happened in each city. And God has a word for those churches based on the context that they find themselves in. Mount Evelyn has a context. The Shire of the Arrow Ranges has a context. The way that we live out our faith in this context will be slightly different to your friends who live in, I don't know, Tarnit or Broad Meadows or the Mornington Peninsula or, or wherever. There is a context of the way that we outwork our faith here that is biblical but looks different because of the cultural works at play. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Be careful of what you import. Right? So we love Australia. We love importing like, like Christian stuff from America. I'm going there. We're doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> now listen, listen, listen. Our faith has a context. There are some of the great amazing, beautiful churches, and I have great friends, beautiful friends, who live in the United States of America. They have a very different cultural context to what we have. They have a very different religious context to what we have. The way of life and their view of um, government and personal responsibility is very different to the way it is here. Not better, not worse, just different. But be careful about swallowing everything that you get from somewhere else and applying everything that you get into our context. Oh, we should be doing what they're doing. We should be doing what they're doing. No, I tell you who informs us about what we're doing. The church around the corner who we're friends with. The other church around the corner who we're also friends with because they are the ones who are in our context and we're working it out together. Your faith has a context, so be careful about what you swallow. It's not apples for apples, my friends. I'm not saying don't listen to it. I'm just saying be careful. Why? Also, another question I had, why to Asia? Write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches in Asia. Why not 
to Jerusalem. I would have written a letter to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the center of it all, right? That's where it all began. That's where the Holy Spirit came and spoke and breathed on the church and the church was born. They were persecuted from Jerusalem and went all over, all over the place, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? Why not to Jerusalem? And also, why not to Rome? Rome's where, you know, the heart of darkness is, right? That's where Caesar is. That's where Domitian's kind of the Lord and God of the time is like doing stuff. Why not write a direct letter to there? Well, Asia's this beautiful middle ground, this place, this liminal space between Jerusalem and Rome. Asia is filled with Jews and Gentiles. Asia, these seven churches are the most influential cities in the day. So presumably, a word goes to Asia, and it goes everywhere. It's not just for Jews if it went to Jerusalem. It's not just for Gentiles if it went to Rome. But it's for both. God's word is for everyone. A little aside that I think is beautiful. So up until now, we've only heard a voice, like someone speaking in another room. John turns to to see the voice, this voice like a trumpet, like a war trumpet that's coming in behind him. And then what he sees, ready, 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 ready for what he sees? I turn to the voice, and the first thing he sees is crazy. He sees the seven lampstands. He sees the church before he even sees Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. He doesn't see Jesus first. Guess what he sees? The seven golden lampstands. What are that? The church. Guess what someone sees when they're searching for Jesus? For better or worse, my friends. I turned to see the voice that's speaking to me. On turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, golden sash. um, Okay, so we'll go through all these. The robe and the sash, that's because he's royal. The white hair is because he's wise. The eyes like fire is because he's all-seeing. The bronze feet are for justice and judgment. The voice, which is loud and clear, sounds like a waterfall. His right hand is for usage because that's the hand that you hold things in when you're going to use them. The sword from his mouth is truth and his face is righteousness. It's like the sun. This is what he sees. I want you to get this image of Jesus into your heart, into your imagination. But again, this is, not a new, this is not a new picture because we see it in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter, chapter 10. Listen to this. In the night visions, chapter 7 of Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. He was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. When John is in exile on Patmos and he sees the vision of a son of man, he doesn't just see this strange character with a sad 
gash and with eyes and with the sword coming out of his mouth. He's reminded of the dominion and the kingdom of the ancient of days, of the one who was promised long ago in the Old Testament. God's saying, I'm still in charge. I'm still in control. I'm still working and I'm still here right now. This is what Daniel is reminded of and something that I think you and I can be reminded of right now. Daniel chapter 10, on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs were a gleam of burnished bronze, his voice sounded like a multitude. Is this making any sense? Is this sounding familiar? So if you, were, uh, if you were a student of Daniel, you knew exactly what John was talking about, which is, guys, God is in control. He's been working history from beginning. This is, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, and now we're seeing it happening again. We're reminded of God's control and sovereignty over the affairs of men and women and children. His dominion will never end. This is our God. The one who was promised is here. He's here. Right now. In this place. And I think the craziest part about all this is this. John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. And he sees the seven golden lampstands, which we're told at the end is the other churches, the seven churches. And then he sees the Son of Man in the midst. In the midst. Walking amongst the seven lampstands. Walking amongst the church. Now this is incredibly important if you were John and you feel separate. But Jesus, I love the church. I can't be near her. I can't be near them. I can't be with them. They're suffering right now. They're going, they're being persecuted. They're being killed for their faith. They're being dragged to the stake. All of this is happening and I can't be there because I'm separate by this ocean. And then he turns to see the voice that's speaking to him and there is Jesus walking amongst the church more present than he will ever be. Jesus is in the midst of his church. See, John can't get there, but Jesus can. Jesus loves his church, and he's in the midst. You know, as a leader, I love God's people. I love God's church, but I'll never love it as much as Jesus does. I'll never be present, as, as present as Jesus is, walking in our midst even now, even today. The Lamb loves his church. We're told in verse 16, in his right hand, he holds seven stars. And we'll talk about the stars in a minute. But In response to this scene, John does, I think, the only thing that is appropriate to do which is to fall down at Jesus' feet as though dead. (laughs) 
He falls down, right? Imagine seeing this. The roar of the rushing waters, the eyes like flaming fire, the face like the sun in all its brilliance, the sword coming out of his mouth, the feet like burnished bronze, the sash, the hair, the whole thing. He turns, sees it. It's too overwhelming. He falls down as though he's dead. I think that's the appropriate response. You know, sometimes it's the only thing you can do. When confronted with, encouraged by the glory, the very real, most real glory of God that you will ever see is to fall down at his feet. John says, as though dead. (laughs) I'm dead. D-E-D, dead. (coughs) And then the most incredible thing happens, I think more incredible than Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. The seven hand, seven, the hand that was holding the seven stars gets placed on John's shoulder. The, seven, the, the hand that was holding the seven stars. The seven stars that he was holding now gets taken from there, emptied of the, and placed onto John's shoulder. If you ever want a picture or an image of the imminence and the transcendence of God all in one passage, it's right there. Is God close or is he far? He is both. Is God glorious or is he intimate? He is both because he can hold seven stars and he can place his hand on your shoulder. Now my hunch is that you will connect with one of those images over the other one. But I want to encourage you today to accept and hold both intention. The right hand is for usage. It's the forward-facing hand. So as he was holding the seven stars because he wanted to use them, he now places his right hand on John because he wants to use him. He's placing his right hand on you. He wants to use you. Now the angels, no one really knows. You can read a hundred commentaries, get a hundred different views about what the angels actually are. The word in Greek, angel, literally means messenger, so it doesn't help us. The word angel in the Bible doesn't have the inbuilt kind of divine um, uh, inference that we do. When you say angel, we all know what we're talking about, right? Cute little baby with a, with a little bow and arrow with a heart on the end, right? That's what we all think about. <laughs> um, so the word angel in scripture doesn't have that same inbuilt connotation. It literally means messenger, right? Someone goes and gets you a coffee and brings it back. Oh, you're an angel. Yes, they are because they brought you a coffee. They were a messenger, right? Like, so that's what it means, except that. So we have a couple of different things we can think about. Were they actual angels, the seven stars? Because in chapter two and three, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the age, they're written to and addressed to the angel of those churches. Is it an actual angel? Could be, like guardian angels that were to protect the spirit, of the, like to protect the church. Um, It could be actually human messengers, like the pastor or the preacher or the person who is the overseer or the caretaker of that particular church, because they're a messenger, right? They're they're relaying messages from God to people. Or it could be the spirit, you know, the DNA, the culture of the church. We're not really sure, and I'm going to leave that one up to you. You can choose your own adventure on what you think it is. 
But either way, for Jesus to be holding those and then placing his hand on John is something absolutely incredible. Something absolutely beautiful. So the thing is Jesus holds the church, but he also holds you. And we'll see next week that he holds the affairs of history. History is not cyclical, just repeating itself. It's a narrative. There is a journey. There is a climax. There is, a, there is, an, there is a, like a, a goal, a teleos. And we'll see all of it is his. All of it is wrapped up together. Where do you go when you're in exile? That's the question. Are you in the spirit on the Lord's day? Or are you just grinding, trying to figure it out? Where do you go when you feel separated? Do you connect with him who's able to connect you more than anything else? Or do you run to your own things? A few questions. How do I see God? What does he look like to me? If I was to turn to see the voice, what might I see differently? How might God use me this week? Remember, his right hand is on you. His right hand, his usage hand. Can I trust God with my future and the future of the church? It's one of the best things about this passage and about knowing this is that for your business, for your family, whatever it is, whatever it is for you that Jesus is in the midst means you get to work with him and it's not all about you. Jesus is in the midst of his church. In what ways can I increase the awe in my life of God? And what difference would that make? Awesome is an overused word. And some, a lot of the meaning has been kind of emptied out of it because we've you know, used it like to death. But true awe, true wonder before the Lamb, before the Son of Man, before the one that was promised, that is, and that is coming again. We'll leave it there. Let's stand together. <clears throat> All right. All those notes are in the Discovery Live app. All the, the headings are anyway, so you can grab those if you need them. The scriptures are in there also. But for now, I'd love it if we would get a bigger, grander, more generous, more expansive vision of who God is. If you don't know where to start, start there. Start in Revelation and become enamored with the beauty and the image of God. I wonder if this is the kind of image that the disciples saw when they got taken up to the mountain transfiguration and they saw Jesus in his glory. You know, Jesus unzips his earth suit and they see through, like, you know, like they see the divine Jesus and his, and his gleaming, his clothes are gleaming white. I wonder if it's the same image. 
I wonder if it's the image that Moses saw when he went up Sinai and there was the thunder and the lightning and all of that and then God appears to him and Moses comes back down and he's seen God and so his face is literally shining. People like had to wear sunglasses because they, they, couldn't, they couldn't look at his face and he had to put a veil over his face just to, to basically as like common courtesy so that everyone else around him could see. I wonder if it's the same image that, that Daniel saw. And I wonder if that image could be awakened in each one of us. Is the image of the Son of Man. And when I'm confused, I want to run to the one who's got ultimate truth with the sword. When things are deceptive and feel strange, I want to run to the one with eyes like flaming fire. Come on. When I'm not sure about who I am or about where I'm going, I'm going to run to the one who's got the sash and the long robe because he's royal. And I know that if I'm connected to him, I in some way am an heir of that royalty. When I don't know what to do next and I need wisdom, I go to the one with the the white hair that's like wool, it's like snow because he knows. When I want to see what's really going on, I go to the one with the face like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. This book is written, yes to the head, yes to the heart, but it's written to the imagination. It's the way that apocalyptic literature works. And there's never been a time where we needed a biblically formed imagination than right now. And God meets us today in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Father, we come before you, the Ancient of Days. Thank you for the revelation Not of John, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. His unveiling, his uncovering, Lord God, his wow. I pray that we would recover the word wow in our faith. That we would recover the word wow in our relationships. May we never move on, God, from wow. So, Father, we bring you our worship. We bring you our praise. We bring you our love. We want to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on this Discovery Church podcast. Now go and find yourself in the bigger story.